You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hi, everyone. Welcome to NASM 2020 Optimer. We're doing it virtual, as you all know. My name is Tony Ricci, and I'm really happy to be here. I've had the fortune of presenting at Optima before, and it's been a wonderful experience, and I've met many of you, and it's always a great, great opportunity to work with the NASM team a great group. Today, we're going to do something, and I, I think you'll find it a little bit different. The title of our presentation is The Merging of Mental Performance with in Dietary Practice. So what we're going to try to do is bring together, if you will, mental skills training and principles of sports psychology and exercise science into dietary practice. And as we progress through the presentation, hopefully, I will make a argument that this is something that we need to consider in the future. So what we're gonna to do today, uh, just to give you a bit about my background, it is an amalgamation of exercise science, sports, nutri sports uh, nutrition, as well as sports psychology. And as I progress through the years of counseling people in dietary practice and counseling people in exercise, I began to realize a very important principle. And that is that most people know generally what to do. They know what is necessary for good health. They may not know how to become an Olympic athlete. They may not know what training modalities are going to bring them to the highest peak, if you will. They may not know how to conduct a dietary practice that will bring them to 5% body fat or a world champion physique competition. However, they know enough to stay healthy. So what we are confronting currently is the concept that people know what to do but are struggling to do it. So our goal today is to see if we can take elements of the field of sports psychology, of mental skill training, and potentially marry them to dietary practice so we can help people to adhere to long-term dietary strategies. That's going to be our goal, and I think we can get it to work, and I hope you find value in it. So our overview, we're going to talk about where are we today in the country? Why are we here? What put us here in the data that we're going to discuss together? And I'm going to propose an argument. And that argument is, or, or just a contention, if you will, not even an argument. That contention is that most people know what to do to be reasonably healthy. Again, maybe not to reach the highest levels of performance but definitely to improve their health and advance it beyond their current habits. 
Then we'll talk about what role does, and, and I'm careful with the word psychology, we're really talking about behavioral practice because we're not talking about psychology in the clinical sense where we're helping people to, to work through a potential disorder. But we're talking psychology as a representation of behavior or even habits if you want to take it in that direction. Then from there, we'll go to what meant, what is mental skill training? And why would we potentially think about marrying and coupling mental skill training for individuals so they can augment their dietary practice? I believe because we know, we know that these mental skill strategies have been demonstrated to be efficacious in sport performance, helping athletes to optimize their performance, helping them to goal set, helping them to manage anxiety at times. The data shows that they can really work. So therefore, I think we have some evidence that these strategies are efficacious. Now, can we find a way to put them into dietary practice? That's a challenge, but that's what we're going to take a look at. And then we'll go into potential integration of the more common MST strategies and see if we can couple them accordingly to diet. So here's where we are. And as I share this slide with you, I often do this. I share this almost every September, a new semester at the university with my students. And this is the behavioral risk uh, surveillance survey. Okay. So that's the BRFSS as they call it. There's a map of the United States. It comes from 2018. I've not yet seen 2019 out by the CDC. And I think we would all agree. They've probably been busy with other things at the moment. But what you're looking at is the deep red states. So we see a very dark red color. That is representative of states that have an obesity rate of greater than 35%. The lighter red shading is an obesity rate of greater than 30%. And when you put those together, we have a total number of about 32 states and I say about because when 2019 comes out, we may find, unfortunately, that more states have met the 30% marker or, unfortunately, the 35% marker. But we're around 32 states in our country right now that have greater than an obesity rate of about 30%. Most are in the range of 33%. So independent of what you feel on how we should or what your thoughts are on how we should deliver healthcare in the United States... We, one might say, hey, you know what? I believe in having a national system that gives medical care for all. That is wonderful. Others may feel there are ways to integrate a private system and bring down prices and make it competitive. And in doing so, we can make healthcare affordable. Both have their place. But the primary concern that I have, and many of us have, I know as fitness professionals, is independent of how we try to deliver any healthcare service if our population is going to continue to rise to a 35, 40% obesity level, independent of the delivery, I'm not sure we can handle that. We have a behavioral crisis as much as a healthcare crisis. Another number that I'll share with you that I'm never happy to do so is by 2030, some of the estimates, just 10 years from now, some of the estimates are that one in two American adults are going to be pre-diabetic, or type two, 50% of the adult population. And my position here today is as follows. Most people know that walking around the block is gonna be good for you. Most know that, okay, cutting back on a little bit of sugar 
and not having too much fat in the diet and refined carbohydrate is a better approach. That information is all over the place. However, we are having a very difficult time in integrating this into our lifestyle. So hopefully as fitness professionals, we can utilize coaching strategies to help change and steer the behavior. And that's what we're really trying to discuss today. Because as we look at this map, it's alarming to me. And it's really a, a sense of urgency that we have to change the direction of health in the United States of America. Why are we here? Now, everyone will have their own position. Why are we at 35% obesity in many states? Why are we a population that may have one in two adults being pre-diabetic or diabetic in only 10 years? There are numerous reasons, and obviously it's multifactorial, okay? It isn't just sugar, or it's, just, it's not just this diet and just a sedentary lifestyle. All of those factors are contributors. But if we go through some of the reasons that I like to share with people, I think it brings light into the fact that it's okay, first, that we struggle a bit with food. The eating environment in the United States is very challenging. Everywhere we go, we have access to food. And that proposes many problems. First, as humans, I would say that we have an innate hunger and appetite due to a food scarcity. And you might say, Tony, what does that even mean? Well, the vast majority of human existence, food was not plentiful. We didn't just call up, uh, what do we got there, DoorDash now? Well, we didn't just order in food or go to the supermarket. You had to raise food, gather food, grow that food, capture it, hunt it. And one bed drought and one bed flood 10,000 years ago, and you may be out of food for months. So we are designed in some ways to be on an incessant quest for food. That's wonderful when you don't have enough, but it's a major problem when you have immediate access to it all. Additionally, of course, our activity of daily living has been mitigated, if not removed completely. And every day, I think we, we further our technologies that make us move less. I won't even say her name because she sits in front of me, but that is Alexa, of course. And she can now play my music, tell me the weather. I don't have to move. Just about everything I need to do, turn on a TV, can be done by way of computer. So we went from potentially hunting, gathering, maybe burning 1,000 calories a day, 1,500 calories a day to survive, in consuming two if things were going well. Now, our activity of daily living is extremely limited, and we can consume 1,000 calories with the push of a button just by ordering food online. So that is a major problem, of course, and people are becoming less and less active, even at earlier in life, which proposes a long-term challenge. Some of us will say, you know, uh, Tony, I, I, and this is unfortunately something I'm very good at. Many of us are pretty good at storing fat. There's nothing wrong with that. We're designed that way because of food scarcity. So that when calories are plentiful, that we will, we will hold on to those calories and store that. If we go through a month of caloric deprivation, in most of our history, that may not have been uncommon. And then we finally run into food. We're going to hoard that food and we're going to store it. The problem now is we have an effective method of storing all that energy and plenty of calories. So that is proposing a major problem as well. Lifestyle, of course, we're on the run. 
We don't have to make food. We can get it anywhere. We don't prepare it. Very often what happens is we'll go hours without food because we know we can go anywhere and get it. And then we've gone six hours without eating and find out we're really, really hungry. And by that time, it's often a little late because we're craving fats and sugars and very often make a poor food choice. So meal preparation is is not cooking chicken by five pounds on a Sunday night for the week, which is quite fine, but that's not even what we're talking about. Just the ability to know and make wise food choices is what we'll discuss. We have uh, obviously a changed food structure. Processed food, nutrient deficient, calorie dense, high sugar. Some of the things we're eating now and consuming, we, we didn't even have on the planet only 50, 60 years ago. So this too is proposing metabolic issues. Many times we talk in terms of, hey, you know, um, Tony, is there an obesity gene? People will ask me, and I'm, I'm not an expert there, and I'm not really qualified to dictate whether or not there is. My argument against it would be that if only 25, 30 years ago, the obesity rate was nowhere, where, nowhere near where it is now, we probably don't have a gene, but we certainly have genetic susceptibilities to the current food structure. Most of us are not designed for it. Unprecedented access, I spoke to that. We're nearly 200,000 fast food restaurants. And that means just the restaurants that you drive through. Sit down ones where they don't have a drive through would not technically even count on the fast food side. So everywhere we go, we can consume food. And I think we all know more often than not, it's usually not high quality food. Something I think is really important are developmental eating patterns. And how did we grow up eating? So if we grew up and we were fed cereals and things that were not quite optimal, and I don't want to call out particular foods, but high sugar foods at a young age, we tend to crave that even later in life. So our developmental eating patterns, whether positive or negative, definitely impact how we may view food, the foods that we will choose first as we age. So it's something that we always want to do is when we work with people in dietary practice, get a history. Let's find out how did they grow up eating? Was it based on the region in which they grew up, a nation in which they grew up? Was it religious observance that helped structure their diet? All of these are factors because they may influence someone's food preferences and their ability to adhere to a long-term dietary practice later. Socioeconomic, no doubt, all right? Generally, the organic foods are more expensive. I'll make an argument that even independent of socioeconomic status, we can make wiser choices, but there are limitations and it is a legitimate concern. So sometimes healthy foods can be more expensive, unequivocally. The conflicting nutrition information, this is another thing that may be contributing to the map we just saw. So one day this diet works, the next day another diet works. Or someone will come out and say, we are absolutely meant to eat this way. And if you don't, you will not be healthy. So there, there is reason to give clout to the idea that, all right, people are confused. No doubt about that. One day they may hear, don't eat A and don't eat B, as we stated. So they're not sure which direction to go. However, generally speaking, there is a consensus that if you're going to eat animal proteins, lean ones are good. Fruits and vegetables are really good for you. Uh, legumes are great. And some almonds are pretty good. There's no mystery in all of that. If you were just to look at a Mediterranean diet, 
there's just a nice cross-section of healthy foods there. I think most people are aware of that, despite the fact that someone comes out with new dietary information on almost a daily basis. However, that dietary information is usually geared towards someone getting quick results, not having long-term success in dietary practice or being coming more healthy from their diet. Stress-induced eating, that is real. Some people eat and they'll say, Tony, you know, I eat when I'm stressed. I can't help it. Absolutely fine. To this point, it does work. If you eat during periods of high stress, it may temporarily distract from that stress because some of the mechanisms of stress, the amygdala in the brain, the portion, the fight or flight can also be distracted and rewarded through food. So we do have a temporary relief from stressful eating, but the problem is when it becomes a long-term habit and solution to stress, and then the food choices are poor, then we run into those problems. But nevertheless, there is some legitimacy to how eating temporarily deflects from the stress response. And it, I've had a lot of people say to me, you know, Tony, I really love to eat. And I will tell you, so do I. My parents are from Italy and they would worry very often at 9 a.m. right after breakfast, what was for dinner? And our house grew up around food. I really like food. I'm happiest maybe when I'm even eating. So there's nothing wrong with the love of it. And we have to let people know that we're really pretty much designed to like food. And that's okay. But how do we navigate through a poor food system or an environment that gives us poor choices with immediate access just about everywhere we go? That's what we're going to try to share and solve together. Okay, so we're going to move to our next slide. Okay, and there it is. So in closing on that little summary, they're cultural, evolutionary, social, family, individual uh, differences in food preferences, individual metabolism, all of these. And social, uh, social scientists and psychologists, registered dietitians agree that all of these factors can influence somebody's dietary patterns, those foods that they enjoy, those foods that they do not. Sometimes you'll hear someone say something, you know, Tony, I just don't like broccoli. That's okay. We know it's wonderful for you. Well, let's find an alternative. Maybe there's another vegetable that they prefer. So what this is about is collaborating and navigating with our fitness clients, with those that want to just have dietary counsel from us and just be steered in a better direction. Do we know enough? And I know sometimes I take a very hard hit for this slide. So my argument is that despite the aforementioned impediments and the obstacles that most people know enough to be healthier, not again, not to be or feel that they can eat and get to a 5% body fat, or they're going to eat like an Olympic athlete, or they're going to eat like an NFL professional football player. They may not know everything about macronutrient distribution then. They may not know about the micronutrients they need or have a, a good solid foundation with nutrient timing. However, if we look, my argument is most can still make a better choice. And even in a fast food restaurant, 
the example here is that, hey, is an artisan chicken sandwich great in a fast food restaurant? It is not, but it is better than a double cheeseburger, as you can say. Is the iced tea good if it's been sweetened? It's not optimal, but it's better than a chocolate shake. And is a blueberry muffin great? Well, it has a little more fat probably than we'd like and a little more sugar, but it is better than a basket of fries or a container of fries. So the point I am trying to make here is not that anyone should be going to these fast food restaurants, but the truth is many people will. And if we can help them navigate through better choices, then perhaps over the long run, we're going to preserve health and maintain it through a longer period in their life. The calories, if you look at them here, what I did is I provided better options. They're not great options, but they're better options when someone goes out to a fast food restaurant. And I would argue that most people would know the difference in that the chicken sandwich, as I said, is a bit better than, of course, the double cheeseburger, if you will. However, too, look at the caloric difference here. If someone was to do this and make these small changes over two to three times a week, they'd be saving nearly five or 600 calories in one meal. Now, if we take that five or 600 calories in one meal and make it twice per week or three times per week or over the course of a year, someone is saving 80,000 calories. That may be the difference between a 10-pound weight gain and a couple of pound weight gain or having advanced type 2 diabetes in a shorter period within the next couple of years versus 10 years. So the point to this is that most people would know probably how to make these better choices, but even still, we're not. So we are not taking the knowledge that we have and applying it. And that is the greater challenge. So does psychology have a role in all of this? These are some studies that I cited. And as we progress, I think what we're going to find, yeah, that eating is much more behavioral than we had previously thought. This is not to say that there are people, you know, everyone has wonderful knowledge. Some do not. And they need more knowledge in their dietary practice. But if you look at the studies in front of us, they do cite things such as it's not the diet we need help with. Okay? It's the mental part. The second study in front of us talks about emotional eating and overeating. That is legitimate. And no one is to be condemned for it. It is a natural response for some people. But some will pay a better, or I should say, a bigger consequence in weight gain when eating emotionally. So it is how we behave, how we feel, how we think that definitely impacts food choices. And something really important, hunger is innate. That is born in us. But appetite is something that we learn, okay? So food preferences, if you will, are something that we do learn. And that is why I felt so uh, it's so important earlier when we spoke to developmental eating patterns. Because if you're feeding a young child something that isn't very healthy for them, but tastes great, has a lot of sugar in it, they're going to remember that food probably for a very sustained period of time in their life. As a matter of fact, I used to eat a cereal once in a while. My mom would bring it home rarely, but it was a treat to this day. I was five years old, which is 50 years ago. I know how it tastes and I can taste it while speaking to you. So the point to that is we learn foods, right? That we prefer good or bad. So we have to learn how to navigate through that and find strategies to help people. 
eat foods that maybe they don't love, but have more value nutritionally and are going to help them maintain their health. What is it about dietary habit that makes everything so challenging? It's different than trying to just change a bad habit, if you will. Okay, food is required to stay alive. We need food. So some of us may have, hey, you know, I got a bad temper. I yell too much when I get home. All right, not a great habit. Oh, I, I get a little stressed. I get a little anxious over certain situations. If I'm in school, I, I wait till the last minute to study. Those are behaviors that are challenging and to change unequivocally, but they're not required to sustain life. Food is. And as a result, it is something we have to do two, three, four times a day. And the urge for food can become very strong. So the combination of appetite, I'm sorry, hunger, which we're born with, and appetite, learning to like very palatable foods, and they're intentionally designed that way, you put these two together and eating well becomes extremely challenging. So if most know the food basics, which is kind of my argument, and they know they have certain food preferences, but those preferences can be learned. My argument would be then, all right, maybe we can integrate some of what we call mental skill training or strategies that help people navigate through their dietary practice. Six weeks is not what we're really interested in. There are many dietary programs and we will see that. Hey, you know, I'm going to do this. We hear it a lot, right? And I'll hear, Tony, I'm going to do this diet or this practice for six weeks, and then I'm going to switch over. And then, you know, I'll try something different. And yet there's no plan for that different dietary practice. Dieting, or we don't want to use the word, I like to use dietary practice because that's what it is, a practice. But eating well over a sustained period of time, very challenging. Doing anything well day in and day out is quite challenging. So therefore, we have to try to develop strategies to augment this ability over six months, one year, two years, not just that short duration. So what are we going to do? Um, some may say, Tony, wow, that's a bit of a reach. And I don't know if I'm qualified to use mental skill training. And does it really have a role in helping people eat well? I think it does. We are not saying today that, hey, use psychological skill training and it's going to change everyone's dietary practice. No, it may not. But the goal with it is to help people navigate through a, a confusing and challenging dietary environment. Really, that's what we're trying to do. When they get stuck, here's a suggestion. Can we change the meaning of food? Can we change how we feel about ourselves after we have a bad day? of nutrition practice or we go to the uh, wedding and we ate very poorly this is how we want to try to help people navigate to think their way through it no different than they would think their way through an examination or how did, would they improve in a martial art over 20 years of practice and you hear me using the word practice because that's what dietary that's what nutrition is it's practice we get better as we progress some days we fail. Some days we do well. Some days we're not in the mood to eat healthy. Other days or maybe a period of a month, we can do great. And we're really focused. But that's a practice, something we do day in and day out and try to master as we progress. So if we can use this mental skill training, if you will, what is it? 
It's used in sport performance all the time. It's used by musicians, right? It's used in theater. Um, Performing artists use it. Many CEOs that I know uh, at the higher at the higher levels of big companies also use leadership training, but mental skill training ways to become better focused, to goal plan more effectively, to image what they want to get done. So let's see if we can integrate it into dietary practice. What is the psychological skill training simply summed up? It's a systematic and consistent practice of psychological skills. And what's the purpose of it? Enhanced performance, enjoyment, to build some resiliency or ability to bounce back when things don't go well, Okay, and achieve a, or optimize the ability to achieve whatever our given goal is. Obviously, these strategies are not just for food practice, but they can be incorporated into it. And we're going to go through some basics today. Some of the more popular ones, goal setting. And we'll talk about it in a little bit more of a detailed context, context than just say, hey, you know, I, I want to lose five pounds. That's probably the problem in goal setting. Thought stoppage. What is that technique? We'll go over it. This will at least introduce it to you. You can do your own research. You can navigate through all the data that's out there and maybe find your own strategies. That'll be helpful in everything else you do and in the clients you work with. Positive self-talk. That is old. We all know this. We've heard it over and over again. Thoughts become reality. To a large extent, they do, and they change physiology which is even more fascinating. So how can we incorporate that into dietary practice? Readiness. In sport, readiness means being prepared, um, having a plan in advance before you go to a UFC fight. I work with a lot of fighters when I'm not teaching. And what they'll do is we'll have a program and it'll be 10 minutes before the fight. Their hands are wrapped. They will do deep breathing. Then they will do a certain warm-up routine. Then they will do certain affirmations or positive statements that they will say to themselves. Then they will activate the nervous system and go out and fight. So there's a numerous ways to create readiness. But I would argue in nutrition, it's a little bit different, but vital. How do we use readiness there? Resiliency training, another thing, that's simple. Things didn't go well, that's okay. Dust it off. And you see the best athletes do that. What do they do? Bad play, bad pass, miss the three points, and then they come back later and win the game with a three-pointer. We need that in a daily dietary routine because it doesn't always go very well. And we got to brush it off when it doesn't. And one of my favorite is imagery. We'll see if we can successfully couple this with dietary practice. It's something I've been doing for a long period of time. So what are the goals? What's our goals with mental skill training? Already mentioned them. Help an individual to be at their optimal level with great consistency. No athlete plays perfectly, right, every day. Um, They'll go over three one day in baseball. They don't get a hit and hit a homer the next day. We want to try to get people to do the best they can as often as they can. That's the goal, okay? The MST strategies, mental skill training, or psychological skill training is also for overcoming obstacles. And what is an obstacle? Well, you're, you're traveling and your normal food habits have been broken up. You go out with a bunch of friends and you're at a restaurant that doesn't offer good food. Kind of an obstacle. It's okay. Navigate around it. We can do it. Unexpected events. Uh, you don't see that too much. Well, let me take that differently. 
unfortunately, a lot of people do have unexpected events in how they apply their nutritional practices. And I think we need to change that. We need to forecast. We need to see in advance and do a little bit of planning so that we know what we can eat, what's, what we can have, when we can have it, when we'll be in an environment where there's bad food. Go enjoy it and work around it. Reflection and awareness. This is our fourth bullet on our slide. It's very important. How do I continue to improve? Reflect on what we've done. Keep a little diary. We'll talk about that. Hey, this went great. Journal successes so that a client builds a resume of things they've done well as they try in their life to now incorporate a fitness and nutrition program when they're already sometimes working two jobs, trying to care for their kids. Some may be going to school, trying to pay bills. What I think we forget sometimes, and I do, I certainly, and I would not assume you all do, but I have, is that it's very hard for some of our clients to put fitness and nutrition all the way up the ladder when there are responsibilities that they have to attend to first. And discipline does have a little bit, if you will, or self-regulation. There's kind of a limited supply. So our clients go into a hard day's work, working with the kids, um, putting in time there, paying bills, staying focused on trying to get a promotion. And then they have to expend energy now on a dietary practice or energy on an exercise program. For them, it may not be at the top end of the ladder right away, and that's okay. But we have to work those abilities into their lifestyle. It's different for many of us. You know, nutrition's number two. Training may be number one. It, your job may be training. So they're right up there. And the discipline that we have and the self-regulation gets applied right away to that. But for many people working their way into a dietary change at age 35, this is brand new. This is something now that you're just undertaking. So we really need to help them to strategize and not struggle too much and burn too much energy to make this happen. So one thing I would always say, and in terms of sports psychology, performance psychology, my goal is always, if you will, to build what we call self-efficacy. Bandora had a model, right? And what does self-efficacy really mean? It's a belief in one's ability to organize and execute the courses of action required to manage pers pers uh, prospective situations. To achieve a goal, the belief that we can do that, the belief that, okay, I can get this done. For many of the people we've worked with, it's a bit of a challenge. And maybe they've not had the success in a nutritional journey that we have. Maybe they have lost weight, gained it back. Maybe they're a little anxious about some of the foods and their ability to achieve this. Much of what we're doing is trying to increase their belief that, hey, it's good. We can do this. We can make some small, simple improvements each day. And by incorporating the psychological skills and the mental skill training, that helps them to gain a bit of confidence and to keep things in perspective. Because as we said, that confidence often fades when someone does good for four or five days and then they have a bad day. And then they overemphasize perhaps the damage that's been done in one day or even put too much pressure upon themselves 
for not succeeding in that day. And I'd love to try to help manage them through that. Many times I've had people say, Tony, I, you know, I blew it. I ate great five days in a row. And on the sixth day, I did terrible. You didn't blow anything because you did five <laughs> days in a row that we did not achieve before. And this is the type of management, if you will, and the thinking that helps bring them through the, the dietary practice over time, improving it over time and getting the belief that they can achieve this. One of the obstacles to belief, I think, is immediate results, right? Uh, let's lose 20 pounds in a very short period of time. And what happens there? Sometimes people are successful and, you know, adaptive thermogenesis or that rebound effect, if you will, is, is very real for many people. And it can be explained physiologically. So what happens is there's a loss of confidence. I did great. And I put it back. I did great. I put it back. And over time, we have people coming to us almost feeling a sense of defeat before they even start. So we've got to help to build that belief that they can navigate through this and achieve it. And usually it's patience. And usually it's one small strategy at a time and recognizing the success. Okay, so we're going to put in a few strategies into dietary practice. Okay, let's see if they work. My hope is they will steer us. You know, I've never thought about using this strategy or that technique. And again, this is not clinical. We are not utilizing these dietary strategies or mental skill training, forgive me, in order to bring somebody out of a potential disorder. We refer them, of course, to registered dietitian, maybe social workers and counselors. This is assuming that someone is like, I need to make some improvements and I'm ready to do it. And there's no apparent limitation there and no apparent issue with it. So I think first, what is the most important thing whenever we work with a client on nutrition practice? It is the assessment. And as we talked about earlier, people automatically, and I did this for many years, I had a diet that or, or a nutrition template that I wanted people to follow. And I would do that without any knowledge of their developmental eating patterns, uh, ethnic extraction, where did they grow up? What are their food preferences? What is their schedule? And without that knowledge, how can I create a dietary practice? It's near, I'm, I'm dictating under those circumstances and not collaborating. The goal is to collaborate. And that motivational interviewing process, Rolnick and Miller, right? Where essentially, what does it mean? We sit back and we listen. We take in information. We find out what has worked, what has not worked what foods they love that may be healthy, what foods they hate that may be healthy, so we don't automatically throw them in. What are their favorite cheat foods, if you will? Or I like to call them treat foods because I don't think it's a cheat if most of the time we're doing well. It's particularly not a cheat if you really like what you just had. I will always emphasize with people when we talk about dietary practice, if you love it, and it's something that wasn't good for you, but you really enjoy it, that's a treat. If you don't love it and it's not good for you, I'd call that a cheat. So you even want to work with them to find out what are the foods that they do treat themselves with. That is motivational interviewing. That is collaboration, not dictating. A prescribed dietary protocol is not going to be efficacious without knowing their abilities and the things that they prefer to do on more of a daily basis.
Now, goal setting, a little bit different, all right? In sport, we try to have very detailed goals, of course, process goals, meaning what am I trying to do now to achieve an outcome later? And the definition of a goal, uh, that which an individual is trying to accomplish, really, it's something we want to achieve. It's an, ob it's an object that we're aiming at or a position that we're aiming at. And we're taking action in order to achieve that. Some of the things that we must consider, though, is that if a goal is vague in dietary practice, it's really hard to adhere to it. It's really easy to lose it. We want to bring the goal to life. So some of the examples I like to give are I want to eat well and I want to improve my nutritional habits because and write those habits, I'm sorry, write those goals down in detail. Why? There has to be a why to it. It can't just be, hey, broccoli and chicken, good. I'm going to lose five pounds. I want to look better. I want to have more energy to be with my kids and my grandkids. Bring family to life into this. If that brings the goal to life is what I meant to say. If we bring someone's family into it and we relate food to family, we have a better chance of, of adherence to that dietary strategy. Why? Because it's so important to them. The goal must have significance. I want to focus better at work. I want to excel at my career. There is no doubt that some of what we talked about earlier, the limitations in discipline, cognitive capacity, or utilization of glucose, we can run out of energy in the brain just like we can in the body. So we relate dietary practice and good eating habits into having better cognitive capacity. I always try to emphasize that with people that really put a great emphasis on that. Oh, okay, we're eating some brown rice at this time, sweet potato here with some protein. Here's how this could potentially improve your cognition and make you more effective at work. So we tie that food directly into the goals. Long-term health, as I said, cognition, more energy for hobbies. I'm reminded I worked for a, a company who was a Fortune 5, and I was in charge of much of the health and wellness services for the company. And the CEO at the time would often call me up and say, hey, Tony, you know, uh, can you give me some advice on dietary strategies? I'm flying all over the world. And, and I would list a, a bunch of foods that I thought might be practical, and some of them he did not like. Fair enough, okay? However, I found some research showing that some of the micronutrients in one of the foods would potentially improve his golf game. And this man loved golf. Golf was everything. Well, I can tell you that if it was broccoli, he was eating acres of broccoli. Once I told him that there may be a connection between improving your golfing performance and your actual nutritional practice. So that is what we mean by goal. What is important? How do we integrate food so that it helps them to achieve that? It might just be a friend of mine had a child at 50 years of age and hey, you know, he started taking care of himself and eating uh, much more effectively, using better nutritional practices. Why? Because he wants to be here to watch his daughter go to college. Okay, that, that was it. That's the goal. So the goal has to be clearly defined and we can relate the food to it. Connected to the client's desire and their goal. Hopefully, that helps them to move forward in their dietary practice. A skill that we call thought stoppage 
Okay, what is thought stopping? Well, it's used a lot in sport. And in sport psychology, I've heard people say, you know, Tony, um, thought stoppage takes a lot of energy. I don't particularly like it. I like more um, act, uh, accept, commit, and then you'll take some action. So uh, different ways or strategies. But what I like about thought stoppage is for some people, you know, I've worked with individuals that have struggled in their dietary practice. But what is thought stopping? Over time, the more many of us have had this, we think of something and we get anxious about it. We may think of a particular endeavor that we've tried to achieve and we didn't have great success in that endeavor. And there's a negative connotation with it. And that pathway can become stronger and stronger. I have that in many arenas in life where immediately I think about something and it's a negative feeling. It's a negative thought which manifests somatically to where you literally feel that. Some individuals have that, and that's okay, that they may struggle slightly in thinking, oh, gosh, I don't know if I can do this. Thought stoppage is a simple technique. When that thought comes, I can't, I failed, I haven't been able to do well in my diet before, we, we design another thought. We just leave that thought, get rid of it, stop it in its place. This does have efficacy and has been shown to be a proven method in sport performance. So in the beginning, what do I have people do? They're saying something negative. What is the place you most like to be? For me, it's the beach. The second a negative thought comes in, I discard it and I just put my brain into the beach in a place where I want to be to stop that ruminating pattern. And that's a thought stoppage technique. Oh, you know, every time I go to the wedding, I can't do it. No, over. I'm at the wedding. Think somewhere else. Stop the negative thought. And as time progresses, what we inevitably do is we replace the negative thought. In the beginning, people need practice. That thought comes in. I can't do this. I can't do this. Thought stoppage is a technique. You stop the thought and I go somewhere else with my brain. Use a new pathway. Get out of the old established one. Years ago, there was a program called CyberVision. They were way ahead of their time. And I used their thought stoppage techniques. What they would do is have a physical representation which is why I put a lecture up here. And what they would do is the negative thought would have a picture. It could be a monster or whatever, or something like a devil. And you would associate that image with the negative thought. And then when that negative thought came, you would have that, if it would, a lecture would come in and be a symbol and take out the negative thought. It sounds kind of juvenile or maybe a little spacey, but I will tell you, it can work because we have to stop people from thinking they cannot do this. And many times I've had people come to me with failures several times over and with a tear in their eye and saying, I don't know if I can do it. So it's just a technique that may help people navigate through. You can use this in sport. Thought stoppage is used in everything. It is not easy to integrate into dietary practice. But if they say to you, oh, this happens to me all the time. All right, well, when you think of it, Hey, let's do this. Let's find another way to think at that moment. And at least this helps to get them out of a ruminating pathway that's actually getting stronger. Okay, we have self-talk, positive self-talk, uh, affirmations. There is no doubt this is affiliated with the thought stoppage, right? Thoughts do, to an extent, become a reality, and they can manifest. They certainly do physically. So I've had this many times. I think about something, and as I said, I become anxious, and I feel it in my stomach. Or that thought actually 
elicits a depressive response. And I feel a little bit down as soon as it comes in. We need that positive self-talk to develop statements. And you develop that in collaboration with them. We don't assign a statement going, oh, I'm going to overcome this diet. But no, we assign a statement that says, I can do this effectively. I have succeeded in the past. We create a little affirmation list. And we do this in sport performance, where before sparring in, a, um, in fight performance, if you will, they are saying a routine of the things that clearly help build confidence in them. Positive self-talk does have a reality. If nothing else, what it does is stop negative thought. And that is something we want to push aside because these thoughts become stronger as we build the pathways. So it is not easy, easy, but you sit down with that person that you're collaborating with on their nutrition practice and let them bring forth, here are things I need to say. Here are the things that make me believe I can do it. Here are things that bring confidence. And you write those affirmation statements with them. Just as you do those goals, those goals should be alive. They should be on paper. They should be available. They have to breathe. They have to be seen. Okay. And that's also what we want to do on that positive self-talk side. Let's develop positive statements. And over time, they become a new network in that brain that may have a better effect than the negative ones that have pulled people away from even starting nutritional practice. Okay, our next readiness, right? I talked about this earlier. People will psych themselves up before a football game, as an example. The American Psychological Association would simply define readiness as a state of preparedness. So you're getting your mind ready. You do warm-ups before a football game, uh, warm-ups before volleyball or soccer tournament. That's physical preparedness. And then self-talk, if you will, goal setting, some of the things we've already talked about, also contribute to readiness because you've defined why you want to be there with the goals. And then with positive self-talk, you're emphasizing why you can achieve this. But I look at readiness a little bit different in nutrition. And that is that we really don't plan at all what we may eat and when. And again, readiness might not be like some of us will prepare food for the entire week. But one thing that happens is people allow themselves to become too hungry. And once we become too hungry, we really do crave much fat, much sugar. It's natural. Undereating almost always leads to overeating. So what we want to do is not so much meal prep, but meal planning. Find out where they're going to be in the morning. What is the best food they can access on their way to work? What is a snack they can bring with them? What are they going to do when they get to the cafe? The choice should be in advance. I remember when I worked at that company, I would often walk to the cafe with some of my colleagues. We had a, it was across the street in another building. We had multiple buildings with the company. And I would always ask people, uh, what are you going to get for lunch while we were walking there? And they'd be like, I don't know. I didn't get there yet. And that was foreign to me. I already knew I was having a tuna wrap with lettuce and tomato. Because if I didn't know that, I'd probably go run around, smell pizza and burgers. So this is what readiness is. Okay, I am not going to eat well Friday night. I'm going out with the family for dinner. That's absolutely fine. How do we make a little preparation and do good Thursday, Friday during the day? 
And you know what? I'll also do this on Saturday. That's good. That's the readiness routine to be able to forecast what I may be able to eat when. There's all different ways to do that. I strategize with what I call a meal ratio. Uh, that's my readiness. I try to eat like eight to 10 good meals to one cheat or treat, if you will. I eat four meals a day. So technically that's Monday and Tuesday, eight meals, uh, Wednesday morning, a couple of good meals. And then by the middle of the day, I might have a treat because I've had eight to 10 good meals to one. There are many ways to help people negotiate through that. But readiness is being cognizant of what your food choices are today, maybe tomorrow, and when you'll be going to a wedding or a party and you can enjoy yourself. People should enjoy themselves, but plan around it. That's what we deem readiness in nutrition prep. The resiliency, there are so many ways to build it. It's not easy. I'm going to say that now. Uh, but you hear that, as I said earlier, all the time. It's what many great athletes have. And that's the ability to negotiate through something that didn't go very well. And say, okay, had a bad day. Doesn't mean the eight good meals I ate will be diminished in one poor one. Nor will five good days be diminished in one bad day not possible. Those ratios are outstanding, actually. So the resiliency is working with the client to say, yes, okay, times it's going to be tough. Times we're going to slip up. Times you're not going to feel good about how well you did, but we've got to start getting in as many wise choices as we can. Get back to that. Sometimes not every meal is going to be good. They'll have a bad Saturday and that'll lag into Sunday. But if we start breaking meals down into a wise choice and obtaining as many wise choices as we can, people start to feel that they are making that progress. That's a process goal, right? Not looking at, I've got to eat 37 good meals in order to lose 10 pounds over six weeks. No, let's win most of the time. Let's bat 80% and build some resiliency to where we say, hey, it wasn't a great day, all right? So what? We'll get back on it tomorrow. There isn't a person out there that doesn't struggle with their nutrition practice at some given point. Imagery is something that I really love. It's my um, probably my favorite skill. And it's going to close us out today. But imagery is so cool in sport because imagery brings things to life. What is so fascinating is that if we were to use a fMRI measuring real time in the brain and an EMG on the muscles, and we were sitting in the chair as I am now, and if we had the capacity to very vividly image a motor skill or like throwing a baseball, we will activate portions of the motor cortex and the brain and the muscles that would be quite similar to when we're actually doing this skill. Imagery is about bringing things to life with our brain power. In sport, you want an image to be uh, multisensory. You want to smell it. You want to taste it. You want to feel it. You want to see it. You want to hear it. And it brings it to life. And the brain has a harder time at differentiating, right, between the actual skill and your image skill. But how do we use it in dietary practice? You see, of course, and feel how you want to look. And you image the meals to the goals. What is the purpose, right? Food has to undertake a new meaning for many of us. And the example I can only give is when I was young, I would 
always eat swordfish and I still do. I, I love swordfish, but the swordfish didn't represent just the fish I would like and it would make me lean. I knew many things that were going on when I ate that swordfish. It would even 30 years ago, I knew it would increase brain function. It would make me leaner. I would get, I could lose body fat. I would stay stronger from eating that. I would get the look that I wanted. My athletic performance would be augmented. These were my goals at the time. Continue to improve on my education. That's what it was doing for my brain. Um, additionally, I wanted my um, performance, as I said, to stay high. And I knew that the nutrients in swordfish would contribute to that. So when I ate a piece of swordfish, it had a greater meaning. It wasn't just, oh, I'm eating this and someone said it's good for me. We have to bring meaning to food. And if we can bring some of that meaning to the food, then maybe we have a better chance at helping individuals to make those wise choices and adhere to them as often as possible. To reiterate, we're not looking for perfection. But when I eat certain foods, just as the CEO ate the broccoli, because it may have potentially augmented and improved his golf game, that is imagery. What is the food and what do I become from it? 30 years ago, I ate swordfish, and I'm with all of you here today, in part because I did that. I do believe it was good for my brain. It's high in omega-3s. It kept me healthy enough that I can be here today. That was a long-term goal, utilizing and taking an image and seeing how the food would create and translate to the things that I want to achieve. Not easy. And some of this stuff I understand would sound a little bit far-fetched or very difficult or challenging to integrate, but they're concepts and they're ideas to help people navigate through. So we're going to go through a little summary, okay? I would close it as the principles of eating are really not complicated, but the application is. It's difficult. Running's not that hard. I think we can all run around the block if we have to. Running 26.2 miles in a marathon is pretty hard. Okay, it's elementary to a large extent as a motor skill. Sure, you can perfect it. I'm not condemning marathon runners, but most of us know how to do it. Can we do it over the long haul? And there's substantive evidence and ob observational, experiential to assert that our healthcare problems, our inability to obtain our fitness goals and our objectives are in very part behavioral that most of us know what a better choice is, but we're not doing it. Therefore, the goal, let's become coaches also that can continue to help people strategize through the very challenging food environment that we confront in the United States. And you may say, you know, Tony, I'm not sure about some of these strategies, but I think some others will work. Great. The goal here is to together find out if we can use these. I have no evidence to date that all of this is going to work, but I have some experiential and observational research that would say, you know, it certainly may help. So thank you. And I hope that you found this presentation useful. I want to thank the NASM team, everyone that I've worked with to bring forth this presentation and all of the great NASM fitness professionals. I've met you. Your energy is incredible. Your desire to improve is incredible. And let's keep going forward and making a healthier population here in the United States. Thank you.